If you're new to New Hope, welcome. Really glad that you're here. Some of you are probably here for the baptisms, and we're going to celebrate that in a few minutes. Really looking forward to that. I'm going to ask you to get into your Bible, if you would, if you brought one with you. They're in the racks around you if you didn't bring one with you. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 6. So maybe you put a bookmark in Ephesians 6 and and maybe put your finger in Romans 8 to get us started. Um, Perhaps it's on your phone, feel free to use that, or maybe it's on your iPad, pull that out. I want to make sure that we're not losing sight of the big picture this morning. We've, we've kind of had our nose to the grindstones in Romans, and if you're new here, we're working through the book of Romans, and we've been in it for a while, but we've been really tight down on a few verses, and I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of the big picture, and so today we're going to do a little bit of a big picture, 30,000 foot view, but before we do that, I'd love to pray with you. Would you join me in that? Father, we're so glad to be able to declare that you have no rival, and that you have no equal. There's no one like you. And so we can come before you this morning and confidently ask that you would teach us more about you. And you've given us your words so that we would understand. And so we come before you asking that the Holy Spirit, whom you've given us, would be our teacher and our guide, and that as a result of having been here this morning, we would leave with greater degree of courage and encouragement and a, a bolder walk before you, that we would really understand your call upon us and that we would understand who we are before you. Father, we ask for this in the mighty name of the one who saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So you were born into a world at war, and perhaps you've forgotten that. Many people need to be reminded of that. You were born into a war, and the war is ongoing all the time. The forces of heaven and hell are clashing, and it's played out here on earth. The world that you live in is in the midst of a violent battle. A clash of the kingdom, Scripture calls it. Charles Spurgeon, if you reach all the way back to 1891, if you don't know who he is, he was a pastor in the 1800s. He was looking at Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians 6, and he said it this way. You, to be a Christian, is to be a warrior. You must not expect to find ease in this world. It is a battlefield. I want to show you how that links with Romans chapter 8 and the reality of what God is showing us when Paul talks about us putting something to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to show you how that applies to your own personal life. So look with me at Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. It says this in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. And it sounds incredibly violent. Is he talking about putting something to death? He's obviously talking about something internal, something that we do on a regular basis, the deeds of the body, he calls it. And he says, if you do that, you're going to live. So it's really important to know how that plays out internally for us, but also how it links externally. What kind of things are going on around us that we need to be aware of? Because Paul says, you're putting something to death, and I told you last week, the first century verb that's related to that is, is talking about an actual execution. When the Romans would pin somebody to a cross or they would behead somebody, the word thanato that's used there for putting someone to death, that was literally killing someone. And the way that it's written, it's written in the present tense, meaning it's something that's ongoing. It's not a one-time thing that you do once and it's done. It's ongoing on a regular daily basis. And if you kill something, it's going to be noticeable. People are going to be able to identify it because there's no life left in something. So as far as a believer in Jesus Christ is concerned, he's talking about a battle. 
a battle that we're all involved in, that you find yourself in on a regular basis. And he says, you're involved in something in the action form of putting something to death. How in the world do I do that? And Paul says, by the Spirit. Now, if that's kind of vague to you, I want you to start linking in your mind. If you know your Bible, you understand that when Scripture talks about the Spirit, it talks about the sword of the Spirit. We're going to go into that imagery in just a few minutes, and we'll come back to that. I just want to move forward into Ephesians 6 now. So if you've got your finger there, I want you to flip over to Ephesians 6 and Romans chapter 8. Keep that because we'll come back to it. I vaguely remember as a child um, these black and white images in the living room of my parents' house of this little 12-inch television screen and, and seeing images that I couldn't make sense of as a kid. It was to do with a country on the other side of the planet that I had difficulty pronouncing, and my parents and others around me told, told me it was called Vietnam, and, and I didn't know what that place was, but I remember seeing the images on that little screen and, and watching the daily war reports and the casualty information that came in, and sometimes the victories and the advances that they made. We had that little screen in our house, and it brought the reality of the war right into our living room on a nightly basis. We couldn't forget that we were engaged in a battle here in the United States. The, the information that the military officials shared was that they had put together intelligence, and they could understand where the enemy was at and how the enemy was acting, and military intel played a huge role in that war. It enabled the soldiers to be able to identify the enemy. Unless you and I know what the enemy looks like, unless we understand how he acts and how he behaves and his actions, you have a really difficult time going into a battle and being part of a battle scene. So in Ephesians 6, what you find is God educating us. God, through his word, gives us information. I want to take you to Ephesians 6, and it starts in verse 10, and it speaks of the battle this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Are you seeing a theme there? There's a, there's a theme of fighting. There's a theme of a battle going on. When he says our struggle is not against it, the word that's actually traded there in the Greek language is this wrestling. Like when two individuals would come together in the Olympics and they would lock and they would wrestle together. He gives us this imagery of a battle. So a Christ follower, like Spurgeon said, is in spiritual warfare. Here's the reason why. Because when God is on the move in your life, Satan is also on the move. When God makes a move, Satan makes a counter move. All the way through Scripture, you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you find move, counter move, move, counter move. God makes a move, Satan makes a counter move. All of the Bible is replete with human history that God makes a move and Satan tries to make a counter move. And if you are walking in the Spirit, you can be absolutely certain you're going to face opposition. Satan is going to come against you. Believers face attack, both internally and externally, but also corporately as the body of Christ. Here's an example for you. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 2.18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. And within that you see both internally, externally, and corporately Satan's coming against them. It shouldn't surprise you. You go to the Old Testament of the Bible and you find that God's own angels were hindered by demonic opposition. 
Later today, if you've got a Bible at home, pull it out and read Daniel chapter 10, and you will be fascinated by the demonic warfare that's described there. God sent a messenger angel to Daniel. When the angel finally arrives, he said, Daniel, I tried to come earlier. I would have been here 21 days earlier, but I was opposed by a demonic prince, and an archangel had to come and do battle with him so that I would be free to come and communicate to you. When you open up the Gospels, you come to the life of Jesus, and you find at the very beginning of his life, just Jesus' presence on earth triggered an enormous battle. You go to the 40 days of temptation, and you find that Satan brings it. He brings a battle against Jesus. After 40 days of disciplining himself through fasting, Satan brings all the temptations that he possibly can. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But at the end of Jesus' life, he's standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Satan brings it again. He brings temptation to him. Throughout the course of Jesus' life, see, many people forget or don't even know we're in a war, and it is fierce. And the reality is our strength is not enough in the midst of this battle. It is not the amount of strength that you have. It's the amount of strength that he has. Amen? It's the amount of strength that he has. So Scripture says in Ephesians 6.10 that you need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's not in your strength. It's in his strength. So I got good news, and you know this if you've been studying Romans with me. The good news is that we are one with Jesus, and that means his strength is our strength. His victory is our victory. So where he has victory, we have victory because he is in us and we are in him. So his power is our power. And the greatest news ever is that the biggest battle has already been won. When Jesus came, he crushed Satan. The crucifixion and the resurrection were just the, the stamp that God said, this is done. I am done messing with this. It is over. So the big battle, we're told in 1 John 3, 8, looks like this. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So you, church, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you're working to put to death the deeds of the flesh that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8, when you're working to do that, you're fighting from a position of victory because the battle's already been won. You fight from a position of victory. So to the extent that we are strong in the Lord, our victory, even over the worst that Satan can bring against you, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, even over the worst that he can bring against you, your victory is already guaranteed. Now, some of you are thinking right now, how in the world do I seize on that? How do I get that kind of strength? Because I come up against these battles on a regular basis. What do I do with this? Well, first thing I need to remind you is that God has an equipment room that is full. He has it completely chocked full, and he's just waiting for you to show up and say, I need that piece of equipment, God. Will you strengthen me? He'll respond to that every single time. We're told that you can appropriate the equipment by doing something because Paul said in Romans 8, you are putting to death. Underline you if you have your Bible open. Maybe circle it in your Bible. You are putting it to death. Something that God is doing through you. But it's a spiritual battle. So let me go with you on the screen to 2 Corinthians 10. It says this in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But check this but divinely powerful. That means mighty before God. They're divinely powerful for what? For the destruction of fortresses. So number one, if you're going to take advantage of the strength of God, you've got to use what he supplies, not your strength. So verse 11 in Ephesians 6 tells you to put on the full armor of God. You have a chair at your home or maybe a sofa that you love to sink into? 
One that's just your, that's your place. Nobody else is supposed to sit in it because it's your seat, right? Okay, when we think of putting on, the word that's attached to that in the Greek language, one of two that will go on the screen this morning is the word enduo. And, and duo doesn't mean just to put something on. It means literally to sink into it, all right? You're going to sink into a chair or a sofa later this afternoon. You're going to sink into it. And then it has this idea of permanence. And duo means you're putting something on, you're sinking into it, but you're not getting back out of it. This is something that you put on and don't take off. Now, we take things off all the time. You play football, you put on shoulder pads. You play soccer, you put on shin guards. You go play tennis, you put on a pair of tennis shoes. We put on the uniform and we take off the uniform in our world, but God said, this is a uniform you do not take off. Once it's on you, it's permanent. It's part of you. Sink into it. And then as a result of putting on the full armor of God, we're told the next phrase is to stand firm. Now, this is a military term that Paul borrowed from the first century world of Rome, brought it over into the New Testament. It has the idea of holding critical ground, your position while you're under attack. So he uses the word histome here, another Greek word, last one you'll get this morning. That, that particular word, histome, means to stand in a position where it has already been won, meaning the position has been conquered, you've just got to hold your ground. I understand why that works that way. Because before any offensive, before you can put anything to death in your life, before you can assault anything offensively, you can't do that until you maintain the ground that you have right now. That means leaning into the Word of God and the Word that He promised you that his promises are true. You can stand firm this morning, church, because the victory has already been achieved. God says, I've already done this for you. You can just hold this ground. What are you supposed to stand firm against? Verse 11 answers that. This is where it gets gritty. Against the schemes of Satan, against the schemes of the devil. Just look closely at your Bible. He said, this is what you're supposed to stand against. I want you to remember, Satan is strong. He is powerful. He is older, smarter, faster, bigger than you. He is the highest of God's created order. He was put over the other angels, a leading angel who rebelled against God. And Satan has been around a long, long, long time. He is not compared to a dragon in the Bible just for fun. Scripture actually calls him a lion and a dragon, and the only way that he can attack God because he's the enemy of God is by attacking you, and he can do that. Job says there's great examples of that in his own life. You haven't read the book of Job before? Go back to the Old Testament later today and read that. He can bring it against your wealth. He can bring it against your home. He can bring it against your family. He can bring it against your business. He can bring it against anything that you have. He has incredible power. So Scripture says to stand strong against the schemes of Satan. Now, the, the word that scheme that's used there is the word methodia. It's not in your notes, but it's where we get the English word method. He has methods by which he attacks you, and he brings the attack against you. So it has this concept of craftiness and cunning and deceit behind it. And the term was always used, this word methodia, of an animal, particularly of a lion. Interesting that Scripture calls him a lion, because what does a lion do? A lion studies its prey. It watches the one it's about to attack. It may be in the bushes, it may be in the weeds, but it's watching and studying and pouncing back and forth is not an option for it until it's ready to unexpectedly explode out of the bushes and kill its prey. 
That's the word that Paul used to choose, what he chose to use when he's talking about the schemes of Satan. So what do those look like today? What kind of schemes is he using against you in 2017? I bet here's one that you can identify with. Accusations against you. Accusations of your past failures. Maybe you've experienced that in your neighborhood or in your home or on your job where people bring accusations against you of things that you failed on in the past. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That's one thing he's really, really good at. What about this one? What about ridicule? You feel some degree of persecution in the place that you live or in the place that you work? Where's that coming from? Who is bringing ridicule and persecution against you? There's a big one that's going on today. There's a perversion in our world today, which I think is consistent with what was going on 2,000 years ago. A perversion of God's purposes and God's plans. And that has Satan's fingerprints all over it. Individuals who are convinced they can do whatever they want with no consequence whatsoever. It's my life, I'm going to do whatever I want. Who are you to tell me different? God says, no, I've got a plan for you. But Satan says, no, you can have your own choice. You can do whatever you want. That is a perversion of God's plan. So John summarizes what it looks like for us internally when the attack come against, comes against us and how the deeds of the flesh work against us. Look with me on the screen at 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. If it's not from the Father, it's got to be from Satan. There's only the two forces going on. I need to remind you at this point that Satan, as though he, even though he is powerful, he is not the equal and opposite of God. He has not as the power that God has. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-infinite. He is not all-knowing. And he can't read your mind, in case you've ever wondered that. Can Satan read my mind? No, he absolutely cannot. So to compare Satan to God is like saying, well, I own a football jersey, so therefore I can play in the NFL. Doesn't work. Now, Satan can dress for the game. He can even show up for the game. But God can take him out of the game anytime he wants to. Satan is not the equal and opposite of God. And as much as he is a source of your trials, and as much as he brings temptation against you, he cannot force you to fail. It is your own independent choice. It's your own decision. So the reality is that one of Satan's favorite attacks is this. He loves to bring discouragement. Can I get a witness on that? You've experienced that? I've experienced it in my own life in just the last couple of weeks in the life of my family. The discouragement he loves to bring is to make us think that we're isolated, we're alone, and that nobody really cares. So if you think that you're feeling like a failure because you are discouraged in this moment, I only want you to think back to the time of Elijah, an author of the Bible, a prophet of God, who has a Mount Carmel experience but finds himself hiding out in a cave after things were really great in his life, things bottomed out in his life, and so he runs away. God shows up at the cave, and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here, man? Elijah's response is this. Don't you know I'm all alone? I'm the only one left. There's no one who stands for you in my entire nation. I am completely isolated. I alone remain. And God says, no, you're confused, Elijah. I've reserved thousands that you don't even know about. Now, I want you to get back in the game. You're not alone in this. That's how Satan brings it. He likes to bring the discouragement. He tries every single angle to try and discourage you and, and to remind you of your own failures. 
So here's what he does. He tempts you to give up when you can't see results. When you feel like only you can see your failures, what is he trying to do? He is trying to rob you of your joy. The joy of being a child of God, of being the redeemed of the Lord. God bought you. He loves you so much. But Satan likes you to think that, no, God doesn't care for me. So the Galatian believers really felt like they were not being cared for. So Paul had to write them a note. And we find in the book of Galatians chapter 6 that they were at this point where they kind of lost heart. And he says to them, Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Now, if I'm in a battle and I got my desires of the flesh coming against me, and I got Satan coming against me from the other side. I got this two-pronged front line, and I find myself in the midst of a fight, and I have to ask myself, how in the world do I fight in that situation? What kind of weapon am I supposed to use? This is why I wanted you to stay in Ephesians 6 with me. Just let your eye drift down to verse 17. We're given some instruction about what we're supposed to do. Ephesians 6:17 says, Take the sword of the Spirit... Now, don't get distracted with this detail that I need to share with you to help you understand this because it does play a role, but don't get sidetracked. The sword that Paul uses here for a description is a makara. And in Roman history, when soldiers went to battle, they usually carried multiple weapons with them, but always a dagger on the side of their leg uh, strapped to their calf just below so that if they were in hand-to-hand combat, they could reach very quickly and pull that one out where they were close to somebody. But the macra was always stored on their hip in a sheath, a long leather scabbard that was strapped right to their body so that they could pull it out in an instant. And that's the word that Paul chooses to use here. But we know we're talking about a spiritual battle. So why is that detail important? In context, he's talking about a spiritual weapon. The phrase actually says the origin of this is of the Spirit. This is where you should begin linking Romans chapter 8 Verse 13 with Ephesians chapter 6 and what we've been talking about. Remember what we looked at just a few minutes ago when we started? If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. And in Ephesians 6 he says, take the sword of the Spirit. Now take has got a great emphasis to it. When you're taking something, he's talking about how to use it. Now think about that Roman soldier with that sword strapped to his waist. They carried that with them every place they went, even when they went to dinner. When they'd lay down to sleep, if they were on the front lines, it was still strapped to them because they'd have to pull it out in a moment's notice. We're told to take the sword of the Spirit in the same way because this weapon is not forged by human hands. There's no human capacity involved here. Remember what we just looked at in 2 Corinthians 10? It says, our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for what? For the destruction of fortresses. So the spiritual weapon he's talking about is powerful and it's ancient and its origin is of God. And Ephesians 6.17 says, take that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So it's really, really explicit. The sword is Scripture. If you're a proficient warrior and you're in battle and you're good with that sword, what are you supposed to attack with it? Well, how are you supposed to use that? Well, let's really link it together now with Ephesians 6 and Romans chapter 8. How do we use this when he says you've got to put something to death? 
Paul said there's something you do. There's an action on your part in which you have to go against your thought. I don't know what kind of thought life you had this last week, what kind of things you let your mind wander off to, what kind of behaviors you're going to have this next week. You know. God knows. And Paul says you've got to be using the sword of the Spirit for anything that is contrary to God. So Romans 8, 13 says, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So this battle that you're engaged in is not only your own desires, the deeds of the flesh, but we're also seeing it's spiritual warfare. When Satan brings it our way, there is an intense battle going on with two front lines Yet God says, in every single temptation, in every single attack that comes your way, my word is sufficient. In case you wonder if that's true or not, I only want you to think back to the life of Jesus. Let's go back to the moment when he's in the the 40 days trial. Satan is bringing temptation his way. It is written that you can do things, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, Let's see you do something. How about if you take these stones and make them into bread? Because you're really, really hungry, aren't you, Jesus, after going 40 days without food? You've fasted a long time. You've got to be desiring some warm, soft bread. How does Jesus respond? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. If you read the story of how Jesus engaged with Satan every single time, he responds with the exact same phrase. If you know what it is, shout it out with me. It is written. What's he doing? He's pulling out the sword of the Spirit. He's wielding the Word of God against the greatest adversary you will ever face. So when you hear externally, God won't forgive you. You're such a loser. No one wants you. That's not what God said. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, church? What's he doing? The word of God. You wield the sword of the Spirit. So when you hear internally and you're thinking in your mind, I can't make my rent this week. I, I can't reach my car payment. My medical bills are crushing me. What did God say? God said, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory. It is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now, if Jesus needed to do that, what do you need to do? If Jesus is your model and he is powerful and yet he leans into the word of God, what do you need to do? What do you personally need to do to fight against those things that come your way? To close this, because I really want to celebrate the baptisms with you, and I want you to see the reasons why these individuals are getting baptized this morning, I want to give you an example of how this sword can fight for you in the midst of a battle. How can you use it in the real world? Because right now, you might be feeling a degree of being overwhelmed. Maybe you just want to throw your hands up and say, man, it's hard enough, Mark, to fight against the deeds of the flesh. And now you're telling me Satan's bringing it too, and I've got these two battlefronts going on? I'm done. I can't do this alone. And if you're thinking that right now, you'd be right. You can't do it alone. Gratefully, God says he's got your back. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 
No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure. Do you know why God can commit this to you? Okay, hang with me, you guys. I know the baptisms are fascinating, right? You see how easy it is to get distracted, right? We, we can lose it, and God wants you to hear this. So stop thinking about the baptisms for a minute. God can commit that to you because he's been there. He intimately is aware of the battle. He knows what it's like. He's faced everything that you've ever faced. He has faced it in a degree that you have never faced. And you're thinking right now, you have no idea what I've faced, Mark. I can tell you that Jesus has seen it in every respect according to Scripture. He has faced things you have never dreamed of facing. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 can say things like, when you go to God, you're going to a God who understands you. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in, who every, one in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So by becoming one of us, we know he understands. He didn't have to become one of us to understand. He's God. He knows everything. He became one of us, and we know that he understands. We know that he understands because he's been where we're at. So he's not one who's unable to sympathize. So when you're troubled and you're hurt, maybe you've got a busted-up relationship. Maybe you've got an addiction in your life. Maybe you're grieving over something. What do you want? You want people who can identify with that. You want a support group. So if you're going through an addiction, you want to talk to other people in an addiction support group who have been through it and come out the other side. You're grieving a loss, you want to go to a grief support group. Somebody who's been through it and has come out the other side. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus is your ultimate support group? He knows every single weakness, and he has unequaled capacity for sympathizing with us. He has been through it all. Verse 15 of Hebrews 4 says, one who in every respect, meaning every single kind of temptation you have ever faced, every kind of circumstance, and contrary to what you might think, his godness made the, the temptations immeasurably harder to endure than what you go through. Let me illustrate it this way. You and I have physical pain when we get injured. Two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I sliced my hand open, right? So you can still see the Band-Aid there today. And, and it cut all the way down to the tendons, and it peeled the flesh back and forth. And now the thing that happened, sorry to gross you out, but here's the thing that happened. I, I pulled my hand back quickly because it was such a huge cut, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, huh, I can see those tendons moving. I was glad everything was moving. And then I thought... That should hurt a whole lot worse than it does. And then it did. Okay? There's a numbness that kicks in when we get hurt. Physicians and individuals that serve at accident scenes say there's something that happens to the human mind when something is so horrific they can't process it. It's called shock. People go into shock. Physically and mentally we go into shock. Jesus, this one who came to be one of us, he had no weakness limit whatsoever. There's no turning off the temptation. 
There's, there's no certain point at which he would make it stop. He experienced every single temptation to the maximum as a human. Yet, verse 15 says, without any sin whatsoever. Somebody say amen to that. No sin on his part. So here's a fact that he knew the depths of temptation in a way that I can never know because fallen man falls before the tempter ever unloads his entire arsenal. But I'm here to tell you, he brought it against Jesus, everything he had, because if he wanted to do anything, it was to destroy God's plan for the salvation of this world. C.S. Lewis, when he was looking at Romans chapter 8 and Galatians 6, had this quote I wanted to share with you. You see it on the screen. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. See, Jesus knows your situation. Whatever you're facing, whatever you might face this coming week, it's not something he's heard about. It's something he personally knows. See, he doesn't roll his eyes at your struggle. He doesn't turn his head away at your pain. He's been there. So God's word, the sword of the spirit that you would yield in a moment like that when you're feeling incredible struggle would be something like Hebrews 4.15 and 4.16 where God says according to 4.16, let us then, because he's a God who knows everything, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. See, I can be confident before God. And the writer has to emphasize that for you. And he has to emphasize that for me for this reason. It's kind of obvious, but I'll state it. Because we don't. We don't feel confident. Why? Well, because we fear that maybe God is going to not care or he's going to rub our noses in it. Because we've all gone to somebody that we trusted somebody that we confided in. And when we did, they took it and rubbed our noses in it and used it against us. And so we naturally think, is that an attribute of God? Is he going to do that to me? See, the truth of Scripture is that any believer, no matter how undeserving, you can come with confidence and you're going to receive mercy and you're going to receive grace. That's the story of Scripture. So when your life is drenched in sweat and tears... You don't come to a God who's incapable of understanding. He knows all your needs. What have we just done in this example? We've just pulled out the sword of the Spirit. We've used God's word to strengthen us. That's why he says, if by the deeds of the flesh you are putting to death, You've got to put to death the deeds of the flesh. If by the strength of the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live using God's word to strengthen you in your walk. One particular item could really jump out at you right now. When he said, take the sword, because it is a thundering command from God in which he is directing us to stand, to stand in the midst of the battle. What you're about to watch for these individuals getting in that tank of water, they're taking a stand. 
They're saying, I'm standing for God. I believe his promises are true, and I'm going to act on them. There's an action on my part. So so to end our time together and, and watch them all take their stand, this is how I want to close. Not with prayer, but with Jude, verse 24 and 25. Jude only has one chapter, so you won't quote the chapters. Just Jude, verse 24 and verse 25. Watch what it says. Now, to the one who is able to keep you from falling... And to cause you to what, church? To stand. To cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and for all eternity. Amen and amen and amen and amen.